Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits. Today, I'm joined by Mark Volchek. Welcome to the show, Mark. Good morning. So you started a company called Hire One, which provides financial services to college students. You took this company public on the New York Stock Exchange in 2010, and then six years later, you guys got acquired by Blackboard for somewhere around $250 million. Uh, but first, I want to take it back to the early days of the company. You guys started in the year 2000, which is 10 years before the IPO and 16 years before the acquisition. What was your initial idea for the company? Sure, yeah. So back in 2000, you know, Myself and my two co-founders, we really were trying to um, make student payments electronic. So back in the late 90s, everything was paper-based. Schools were sending out paper bills. Your financial aid was paper-based. You would pay your uh, tuition with a paper check. And we essentially believed that we could bring you know, electronic payments and, and the internet to essentially um, college, university um, back offices and make those transactions between students, parents, and the school um, electronic. And that was really our initial sort of um, goal and motivation. And were you guys students at that time? We were. So I was a senior, Miles was a junior, and Sean was a sophomore. And so um, we figured, you know, the one thing we knew is we understood the problem and we thought we had come up with a good solution. And so our goal was to hire really smart people around us to help us build this company. Um, and that's what we did. Okay, so you guys had a personal pain point uh, that you felt as students. Exactly. And you decided to go after that pain point. What was the first product or service that you launched? So the first um, you know, real product we launched was with University of Houston, and it allowed um, the students to use their ID card off campus. Um, and they were able to put funds into an account associated with their ID card through a MasterCard logo. Essentially, we made the ID card into a debit card. Um, and then, um, subsequently, we allowed schools to disperse excess financial aid for room and board and books directly into that account that was linked to the ID card um, to make it very convenient for students um, right at the beginning of the semester to be able to buy their books and pay for their um, you know, expenses. Um, if they needed that from financial aid. So it was sort of an integrated package um, in the very early days. And so the first full product was actually launched at University of Wisconsin Stout, um, which is one of the uh, UW system campuses. Um, and they launched uh, sometime, I think, in 2002 or 2003 um, with that full product bundle. Mm -hmm. So you guys combined the student card with a debit card. And I guess that's where the name of the company comes from, Hire for higher education and one card uh, for one card. So higher one. Yep, exactly. That's perfect. So what was the initial go-to-market strategy here? Like, how did you guys launch this thing? So, you know, we took a difficult route in terms of selling to the school. We believe the only way to really get good adoption and good integration was to get the schools on board. Um, and so that was very difficult. Um, it took us almost two years to get our first client signed up. We had done a small-scale pilot. We were building technology. Again, this is um, you know, over 15 years ago. 
And so back in the day, it wasn't as easy um, to get things up and running. There were no cloud services. So we had to you know, buy servers, um, do programming, do integration to the banking systems, do integration with the schools. Um, and so ultimately, um, you know, we raised a little bit of angel money in 2000. We hired a CTO. We ultimately hired a VP of sales who had experience selling to university CFOs. Um, then we raised another angel round in 01 because, again, this was right after the dot-com collapse. So it was very difficult to raise capital. So we sustained the company and built the company the first two years on angel investor capital. And then in 2002, we actually brought on an outside CEO, um, an experienced CEO who was 20 years older than us and had done um, lots of exciting things in his career. Um, and with his help, we were then able to raise our first institutional money in 2002. So education is often seen as sort of this old man's game in a sense that it's very difficult to get your foot in the door, uh, very difficult to offer something new, very difficult to close deals, uh, essentially very difficult to disrupt. And as you mentioned, for Hire One, you guys decided to take the difficult route of actually closing these schools. How did you get these first meeting with colleges and how do you actually close them? Yeah, so the key there was really to hire that first VP of sales um, who had sold to universities. So he had actually prior to working in Hire One, he worked for a telecom company selling physical phone lines to universities. Because as you remember back in the, you know, you may not remember, but back in the 80s and 90s, student dorms had physical phone lines in them. And so he was actually in, you know, in the business of selling to universities. And so when he came on board with us, it was very easy for him to get a meeting. The first thing he did was get a focus group together with a number of um, CFOs, and bursars, which basically run the business office um, in the university, um, to sort of get them together, give us some feedback. And that was sort of the, the first step to getting meetings. But he was very experienced in this space, so he had a lot of contacts. And that's what's really important. When going into business, that's sort of an old line industry, it's very important to have somebody who can open those doors and get those meetings. And then often we would go with him and we would talk about the tech, we would talk about the product, but he would really get those meetings and get the doors open and then ultimately get through the process. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of universities have purchasing processes that might include an RFP. Um, the, often the sales cycle can take you know, six months, 12, or sometimes even 18 months. So it's important to have a very experienced person um, to help with that. Mm -hmm. So you guys had a person that could get you in the door and uh, get these deals done. So you guys had a product, you had these partnerships with colleges, and you guys had some customers. Was there a particular point in company history where you felt like you guys reached product market fit? Um, sure, yeah. Once we started getting some traction, so we went from kind of one customer, then two customers, then to six customers, then to 13 customers. And really, our customers launched every semester. So four semesters in, when we got to 13 customers, I think that's when I would say we really um, felt like we had product market fit. Um, and I think that's a pretty good sort of ballpark for enterprise type companies to have a dozen customers um, and continued growth and revenue generation and 100% retention. So we had 100% retention of university clients for I think the first 10 years of the company. We did not lose a single university partnership. And we were very proud of that. And I think that's part of, you know, when thinking about, um, product market fit, not only to have the number of customers, but also um, to have that high retention rate. And in our case, 100% retention rate. So when you guys had these first dozen customers and such a high retention rate, uh, did you experience some sort of explosive hockey stick growth after that? 
Um, in some ways, you know, it was almost like double. So one, two, six, thirteen, and I don't remember the exact couple uh, of accounts after that. Um, but you know, when you double every semester, that's actually very, very fast growth. So, um, you know, we grew very, very quickly after, from kind of two thousand two all the way through two thousand eight, probably for those six years, um, and then we started getting, you know, very large. So, um, in two thousand eight, we ended up selling a third of the company to a private equity firm. Um, and became more, um, started diversifying the product as well. So to your question, um, the first product was this card integrated solution that was allowed, you know, would allow electronic disbursement of financial aid. But then sort of a few years later, we also launched electronic bill presentment, electronic bill pay. So that allowed the schools to send out bills electronically and get the payments electronically. So we started diversifying our product set because, we had so many university partnerships that, you know, we felt like we could add more value to existing clients rather than just go after new clients. So on the topic of hockey stick growth, um, I think obviously it's something that all startups strive for, but at the same time, it could present a lot of challenges, especially for companies that are, uh, are not ready for it. So in your opinion, what sort of things have to be in place at a company uh, for it to scale? Um, you know, it's really a combination of, you know, the right team the right product slash technology, you know, again, that depends on really the type of business. Um, and then really market, product market fit, which then leads to demand, right? So if you have the right team that can execute, that can sell, and you have the right product that people actually want and are willing to pay for, then those are really the key ingredients um, for growing the company and then really hitting that um, scale inflection point. Yeah, and I think a lot of companies, uh, or at least some companies when they're thinking about scale, uh, they tend to hyper-focus on marketing, uh, meaning scaling the demand side of things, but they sometimes lose sight of other aspects of the company, like scaling the, the operations as well. Um, at the peak of the company, while you were still there, how many employees did you guys have? Um, about 1,000, and that included um, about four or 500 part-time customer service reps, because we had a lot of seasonality in terms of our customer service needs. Um, so I would say we had about four or 500 full-time and another four or 500 part-time um, employees. And was it all focused on one location or were you guys sort of spread out? So headquarters was based in Connecticut, in New Haven, Connecticut, because we started the company while students at Yale and we kind of uh, stuck in New Haven. Um, but through some acquisitions and um, other initiatives, we ended up with offices in upstate New York, in uh, the Bay Area, in Atlanta. And then also in uh, Chennai, India. So um, ultimately, we had you know somewhat distributed workforce, but about three hundred of our employees, uh, and those were mostly full time, were in New Haven, Connecticut. So in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot more startups have become open to having remote employees, whether it's in another state, in another country, and that's happened for a variety of reasons. Obviously, uh, in your case, what made you guys want to hire people in another country? Yes, yeah, so it was a combination of access to talent and cost. So um, the CTO we brought on um, sometime in that 2008-2009 timeframe had had a lot of experience working with folks in India. He brought on a uh, manager um, for that India operation that he was familiar with um, and who did a great job for us. He hired some great people. But as you know, hiring tech talent is difficult in the U.S., um, it's a tight labor market, even back then. And uh, so we were not only able to save costs, but we were able to hire 
um, talent quickly that we needed to grow and scale um, for particular projects. Um, so that really led us to opening that India office. And those were all our employees. So we didn't outsource to India. We essentially opened a full office, hired a, um, a director, manager for that office. And then we scaled that while I was there um, to almost 50 people in the India operation. And did you guys set up that office yourself or did you use a third party to help you set it up? No, we, we did it ourselves because um, our CTO had experience with this particular person who we hired to sort of be the manager of that office. And he, was a, he had done this before for other companies. And so he did that all kind of for us as our employee. Okay, so he was the one that could get you in those markets. Uh, let's switch gears to your exits. So in 2010, you went public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, what made you want to IPO? So it was sort of, I would say, you know, there was one step before that, um, sort of a partial exit. In 2008, um, we sold a third of the company to that pri- to a private equity firm called Lightyear Capital. And um, with that, that sort of put us on the path to eventually go public to create liquidity for them and for all our shareholders. Um, and so 2008 allowed us to provide some liquidity to some early shareholders. We had been in business for eight years at that point. Um, and then in 2010, as you know, an IPO is not really an exit event because um, we only sold about 20% of uh, the company's capital structure, so of the issued shares in the IPO. Um, and even though our IPO was all secondary shares because we didn't need primary capital, the company was generating in excess of $50 million of EBITDA. Um, so we really used the IPO as a way to create liquidity, to create a market for our shares. Um, but it wasn't really an exit. It takes years through an IPO after all the lockups and the um, sale restrictions and other you know, things to actually sort of allow you know, management or large shareholders to sell post-IPO. And for the listeners that may not be familiar, what is needed for a company to go public? Like, can any company go public? Um, so back then, you know, in 2010, the guideline was really, um, you wanted to have over $100 million of revenue. Um, you know, we were significantly above that. We, had, we were very profitable. Um, and really the goal was to get a billion dollar market cap um, otherwise, it's sort of subscale. I think today that has actually moved even further out. And today, for companies to really want to be public, um, you really want to have two or three billion dollars worth of market cap to make it worth the cost of going public, being public. Um, and so, there's a lot of you know hard and soft costs associated with being a public company. Um, there's lots of technical listing requirements like audits and SOX compliance and other things. Um, but essentially, as an entrepreneur, I would think about, you know, is my company approaching a billion dollar, you know, value or more before I would really, you know, even think about um, an IPO. And we see nowadays a lot fewer startups go the IPO route uh, than they did 10 years ago. Do you feel that it's because of the guidelines they got stricter or maybe there's other reasons? Um, I do think it's because the cost of being public have gone up. And that's why I think people's expectation of sort of these the size of company has moved up. Again, technically, you can be public at, you know, $50 million valuation, and there's all kinds of, you know, pink sheets and over-the-counter trading. But if you want to be a, you know, fully listed public company um, with uh, institutional research coverage, that's kind of where I'm talking about those guidelines. And I think companies are, you know, also taking alternative routes of selling their shares 
to private equity firms. As you know, there's lots of um, private equity money out there looking for you know great profitable companies, and so that's an alternative that you know often creates a lot less risk and a lot less cost after um, the exit. Um, and so that's an alternative that more and more companies have um, pursued. Yeah, and I think nowadays uh, the funds got much much larger. The funding rounds. Uh, got much larger as well. So companies can raise these massive, massive rounds uh, without having to go public and sort of avoid the some of the downsides of being a public company. Uh, what are some of the things that are different about running a public company uh, than a private one? Um, sure. You know, the biggest issue, I would say, is just fo- too much focus on quarters, quarterly reporting, quarterly numbers, um, in terms of communication. Um, it's much more important to restrict certain data to make sure it doesn't get out too early to the public, which means often restricting information from your employees. Um, there's a lot of costs associated with, you know, public company insurance, but time cost on management to, you know, meet with public company shareholders, go to public company conferences. Um, and so some companies decide not to do some of that stuff, but then you're sort of giving up the advantage of being public and getting you know, reasonable stock price and reasonable float um, in trading of your shares. So that time and the communication sort of friction, um, I think is significant for every company to think about, in addition to the hard costs that are probably approach, you know, for our size company, it was probably a million dollars of hard costs just between insurance and audits and filings and all kinds of other sort of things you have to do as a public company. Um, the soft cost can be can run you in the millions in terms of management time and and management distraction and issues around internal communications. So you got a pretty interesting experience because you went from a private company to a public company, uh, and then you went back private. So you got acquired by Blackboard in 2016 for somewhere around 256 million. What was it like to go back to a private company after being public? Yeah. So let me step back a little bit and talk about that um, because I sort of left my full-time role um, in 2014. So I was CEO of the public company. And in 2014, we decided that we were just subscale. Our market cap had sort of fluctuated between, you know, 600 million, we went public. Um, We peaked a little bit over a billion dollars. And then given the regulatory environment and some of our partner um, bank issues, we essentially um, saw a decline in our market cap and decided that the best strategy for the company to maximize value for shareholders would be to split the company into three parts. So starting in 2014, as a board, we decided to sort of do a three-step go-private transaction. Um, I decided to leave my full-time role because I was kind of burned out. It had been 15 years. Um, and I stayed on the board. We hired an interim CEO for that two-year period to essentially do that three-step transaction um, and split the company. So the first part of the company was sold to Leeds Equity. Um, The second part of the company was sold to um, Bancorp Bank, um, or actually Customers Bank, sorry, to Customers Bank. And then the third part was ultimately sold to Blackboard um, in that kind of uh, two-year span, so starting in 2015 through 16. And uh, so I stood on the board through that period and then in 2016, once the last of those three uh, transactions was complete, um, I, you know, the company was essentially dissolved, you know, became part of Blackboard, that last piece. 
Um, and then, you know, my role with the company was, was complete. So you left the company and you went to the other side, so to speak. You started your own venture capital firm called Las Olas. And when you were a founder uh, running Higher One, you also raised capital. So you raised from angels, from venture capitalists, from the public. So now that you sit on the other side of the table as a VC, uh, what sort of things do you wish that you knew as a founder about raising capital that you know now? Sure, that's a great question. And you know, it's actually really exciting to now be on this side in terms of the investing side, even though we really feel like starting a venture capital firm, we're starting it just like a startup. So we had to raise capital for the fund. We had to recruit employees. Um, we had to do a lot of the things you would do when starting a company. And we also run our venture capital firm like a company. So we think of founders and um, as customers. We think of our investors in some ways as customers. Um, and so we run it a little bit different than I think many venture capital firms in that we track our marketing budgets. We track where our leads come from for inbound deals. We do a lot of things like we would for tech tech startup. Um, that said, I think what's really important for founders to know is you know, what investors are looking for. And certainly being now on the investor side, we're really looking for companies where the management team seems to really be working and really executing. I think that's really the number one thing to prove is that you can set yourself goals and you actually hit them. And I think thinking back to the higher one days, it's one of the things we, we had done maybe naively without knowing what exactly we were doing is every year we would set goals, you know, financial goals, but also, you know, other, you know, strategic goals. And when we would hit them and we would go back to investors and say, listen, here were our five goals for the year. We hit all five. We need more money. And that's why we were able to raise more money every year during the higher one days. And that's really what we look for in some ways as well. We focus on B2B companies. So companies that sell their products to enterprise, to business. Um, and we look for repeatability. So management teams that have a sales process, that have product market fit, and can show that they're executing, that they have high retention of customers, you know, high success on the sales side, and a product that's not obvious, so it's somewhat defensible, but that com people, customers, are willing to pay for and willing to stick with. That's kind of what we look for, um, and because that's kind of our thesis. But I think all VCs look for, you know, management teams that can execute and can actually, you know, fulfill their plan because that's the bottom line, you know, what makes a business successful. And a part of your investment thesis, Alas Olas, is investing in extraordinary people who are building the future in non-obvious places. What are some non-obvious places that you guys look for? Like, uh, what are non-obvious places in general to you? Is it geographical or is it something else? Um, so to us, it's mostly geographical, and I'll talk about what else it means in a second, but geographical, we believe there's really smart people outside of New York, Boston, and Silicon Valley. And so we see that there's lots of opportunity and actually underinvested opportunity in the Southeast, for example. We've made a few investments in Florida. We've made a few investments in Atlanta. We've made an investment in Memphis. Um, so they're really smart people in non-obvious geographies, but also non-obvious sort of industries, um, there's often um, what we find is founders who are really, really smart and know some industry better than the average person. So often when we look at a business, we're like, we didn't even know this was a problem. But obviously, if you're inside that industry, you start understanding 
um, that there really is a problem. So one of the areas we focused on has been DevOps. So these are tools for developers. And not being a developer, often I don't even know the exact problem that a developer might have. But that's where meeting the right teams, extraordinary people who have sort of a product or solution in a non-obvious place, and again, that's geography or industry or sector, um, is really where we want to invest. Because when something is obvious, um, either by geography or, or sector or solution, then it becomes sort of a, a war of who can raise more money and who can spend more money on marketing. That's not really what we want to invest in. We want to invest in great companies and great people where we're winning because we have a non-obvious product that's just better and out-competing other folks and have a better team that can out-compete the other folks and not just a you know, race on who, who can spend more money because we're not a big enough fund to, to play that game. Um, certainly many in Silicon Valley play that, um, but that's not kind of what we invest in. Yeah, and I can definitely resonate with the point that you mentioned about uh, investing in founders that are solving a personal problem that they have. Uh, I think these kind of founders are not only able to identify uh, certain problems within a market better, but as well as they're able to reach product market fit sooner uh, because they presumably know the, uh, the market better, the target customers. At the end of the day, they are potentially their own customers of their product. Um, at last, Olas, is there any particular stage that you guys focus on? Yeah, we generally like to invest in the seed stage, um, and that can mean lots of different things for different people. Um, for us, generally, it's a company that's reached early product market fit, generally evidenced by paying customers, um, but that can manifest itself in many different ways. So our, our perfect company would be someone with maybe a million dollars run rate, um, maybe 12 or 15 enterprise clients paying using the product, um, you know, maybe they only have one or two salespeople today and want to scale the sales team and are looking for a partner for capital and expertise to help with that. That said, we have also invested in a few pre-revenue companies that have lots of users though. So there's a product market fit, but maybe they haven't been able to monetize yet. So one example in Cyprus, um, they had really started from being sort of an open source, um, freeware type solution. Um, and had thousands and thousands of um, developers using their products, and they they were uh, raising capital to help them migrate to add sort of an enterprise layer on top that would then be a paid um, service. And they did that very successfully, and we're very, very excited to be part of that and having invested right before they started the monetization. So I'd say seed, and it's really pretty gray to us. Like we want to see proven product market fit, but what that exactly means, really depends on each company and the strategy and the go-to-market strategy. And that's actually one of the areas where we've spent a lot of time looking at these sort of bottoms-up go-to-market strategies and different approaches rather than just doing everything as enterprise sales. Some companies have the great opportunity to sort of let end users start experiencing the product before they actually start making those enterprise sales. And that's kind of you know, a different go-to-market strategy that you know, we've been spending a lot of time on. So for founders that are looking to raise capital, a lot of the times, one of the hardest things is simply getting a foot in the door and getting one of those first meetings with a VC. As an investor yourself, how do you like to be approached? Yeah, so we look at all you know, opportunities that come inbound. Um, you know, the easiest way is to go through our website, which is lasolasbc.com. So that's um, L-A-S-O-L-A-S-B-C.com. And we have a way to contact us through the website. Um, so that's one way to approach us. The other 
is to really get an introduction through maybe one of your early angel investors. Um, what we found um, is when things get curated, most of the companies we invest in have raised the previous kind of pre-seed or friends and family round. And getting an intro from one of your very early angel investors um, is often better because that helps us sort of filter things and spend more time on deals that come through, um, you know, trusted sources. But we do look at all opportunities and all emails that we get inbound. And um, so we're happy to get things directly, you know, through our website and look at those as well. Um, but important to think about the right stage and the right way to approach us um, and to sort of be really upfront about the stage. Where are you in terms of traction? Where are you in terms of product market fit? Where are you in terms of team? And if you are too early, we love to stay in touch with founders and entrepreneurs and maybe give them some advice, point them in the right direction. But it's important to give us that information right up front um, so that we can kind of assess, you know, what the right approach is. Yeah, and I'll make sure that the link to the website is in the show notes so the founders, when they're raising capital, they know where to find you. Great. Mark, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. It was great to have you on. Great. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.